Hey, just a warning to our listeners today that this episode of Standsable deals with some pretty heavy topics um, such as trauma and sexual assault and child abuse uh, and some other, other pretty heavy things. So just be aware of that um, if you're listening to today's episode that uh, we'll be dealing with the, some of those topics. Hey friends, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again for Standsable. I'm one of your co-hosts, Thor McCarthy. And I'm your other co-host, Dylan Kirsten. This week, we're going to hear from one of our best friends, Luke. Luke is a neuroscience major at Emory University, has read Infinite Jest more than once, and this past summer, he spent his time working at a group home. So I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear this story um, today. It's, it was originally a longer work that Luke had written um, that was very moving, very powerful. Dylan and I both read it and we loved it so much that we asked Luke to um, kind of edit it down for length and to be airplay friendly for the show. So it's not going to be our usual interview type format. It's just a, a pre-recording of Luke narrating um, what he has written. So that's a little bit different than usual, um, but I, I really think you're going to love it. Uh, it's very powerful. So hold on to your hearts because it's story time. story of how I learned that a hug can't fix everything. Trauma Queen. I hug my ma, and to the casual observer, nothing much happens. My body communicates a visceral feeling of safety I can feel emanating from my gut. It releases oxytocin, a neurotransmitter implicated in social bonding, childbirth, orgasm, war, and lactation. Pain, annoyance, irritation, wash off my body like mud under a hot shower. A safe hug is the opposite of trauma. For the summer, I am a residential advisor at a youth behavioral rehab with a trauma-informed focus. I am paid to live with unsafe human bodies. Bodies that hurt other bodies. Bodies that hurt themselves. Bodies that have been hurt, sometimes more than I could imagine. Beaten, starved, ignored, touched. I am paid to live around houses of cards. Careful not to breathe too intensely. At home, I enter a room with one human body in it. She appears static. I begin to scream, quietly. I am a distant fire alarm. The body looks comfortable, serene. She is reading recipes. Imagines mushrooms being washed. Fertilizer reluctantly divorced from fungus. Her brain creates wet celery sliced crosswise. Rice grains fattening and softening in a roiling boil. The smell of crushed garlic hanging in the air like overzealous holiday decorations. Her somatosensory, motor, and olfactory cortices are activated almost as if she is cooking jambalaya in this instant. I scream louder. Involuntarily, her brain devotes fewer neurons to imagination and more to the sound I am making, I am certain. I am not acknowledged. Her face is full of resting potential, like a dog sled team settled in for the night. I step forward and put my hand between her iPhone 5 and her eyes. Once, my friends and I had a conversation about tickling, using the language of consent. It had been an unsettling conversation. I found myself saying, sometimes when someone says no, stop, what they really mean is yes, please continue. And, but explicitly asking for consent ruins it. No, she says, as if declining a telemarketer. Of course, I do not stop. Oof, I say when she kicks me in the gut. Her eyes remain glued to her screen. Nope, no, sir. Ah! 
Can you not see? Ow, jeez, I'm reading my recipe. I retreat, looking beneath her features like the Loch Ness Monster. There is a smirk. Hiya, I shout and throw the ottoman at her like a live claymore. Stop, she shouts, but of course I do not. Like a pickpocket, I delicately untangle her from her blankets. I take off her sock to begin tickling her foot, and we make eye contact. Grandma, she yells, and of course I stop instantly. I lay down on the hardwood floor. Hey, bud. Hey, she says, and steps on my belly button and sternum, on her way to the kitchen. I was thinking about making jambalaya. There are lots of ways to say no. I'm sorry, pineapple. Yes, get that out. I'm fine. I wasn't doing anything. Please let me go. Maybe not. De-escalate this. Ask your mother. After the tickling conversation, my sister and I settled on grandma. Under certain circumstances, there are very few things our clients at Grace can do to make us stop touching them. And most of them we try to keep more or less secret. For example, they can say, I can't breathe. By law, we have to let them go. Or they could be naked or sexually aroused. For obvious reasons, if a client is naked or sexually aroused, we do not go hands-on. There is one way out of a restraint we push very hard. It's the heart and soul of therapeutic crisis interventions branding. Calming down. De-escalating. If a client is not spitting, screaming, swearing, biting, threatening, or banging their heads off something, they should not be in a restraint. I'll let them kill you. You just wait till I'm out. Of course, I do not stop. I'm calm. I move Nigel's arms carefully at the creases, gently. Therapeutic crisis intervention reminds me of origami. Fold here, breathe deeply, clear your mind, decisive motions. I would love to let you go right now. Can you calm down for me so I can do that? Later that weekend, an octopus slithered into my room. Did not say cross. It is naked, red, and vindictive, like a newborn baby. Like a pickpocket, the octopus delicately untangles my body from the sheets, before slinging it roughly to the ground. It is, of course, not therapeutic crisis intervention for an octopus to perform a restraint alone, especially a supine restraint. At least four people are required, three to hold my body and somebody to witness. The tentacles are cold and slimy, and I wish he would just let me sleep. I do not consent to him touching me, to him knowing I'm this sweaty when I sleep, to him knowing how little I would resist a lone octopus if it burst into my room, woke me up, and put me in a supine. I don't say a word this entire time. Three facts remain, immutable as a signature. I cannot stop this restraint. This restraint is my fault. I am the octopus. On Monday, I tell my kids I had a dream. An octopus came into my room and restrained me, even though I wasn't doing anything. That's how we feel when you guys restrain us, piped up a diminutive Puerto Rican girl who has never been restrained. But today is Friday, and it is past bedtime. I'll have him kill you all. My dad beat me with a baseball bat. You think you scared me? Nigel has torn down every decoration, roll, piece of art, and poster in the unit. He has thrown every cushion, knocked over every chair, and we go hands-on when he picks up a table. I'm holding down his right arm. Are you okay? Asks my coworker, who is struggling with Nigel's left arm. No, this one keeps breathing his hot breath all over my neck. He means me. I turn my face the other way. Are you thirsty? Do you need the bathroom? Asks my coworker on legs, who is technically facing the wrong way. I need you to get off me. Of course, we do not. He is furiously punching at my thigh. Since I'm doing this restraint correctly, his punches have about the strength of a tomato falling a few inches. He seems particularly angry at me, which is odd since my form is actually pretty good, arguably the best of the three staff doing the restraint. I keep breathing, empathizing, and communicating. We will continue to do so until he calms down, gets naked, or says, Grandma. 
I start writing poems about my kids on my first 16-hour shift. If a client is considered a danger to themselves or others, we send them to the hospital. Until the hospital decides what to do with them, one staff stays with the client at all times. 30 minutes into this shift, I begin writing down random details. The room smells like jalapenos and floor cleaner. Was the security face was the security guard's face merely bland, or was he almost embarrassed? I enlist my 13-year-old client's help to figure out the names of all the medical equipment for help with future rhymes. That's a cup, she says, and giggles for 15 seconds. That's a machine. Compare the medical staff, who use the same no-nonsense mannerisms to ask about suicide history and sprained pinkies, to the mental health professionals, whose eyes soften slightly and who speak a little gentler when they ask how exactly the attempt occurred. Mr. You have RBF, she says to the security guard. Be polite, I admonish. I'm sorry, but it's true. He smiles. I know. Definitely more bland than embarrassed. Define horoscope, I type into Google. And you're short, she says. I know, he says, and smiles again. I don't even try. Over the course of the night, she accuses me of lying or withholding information about where she's going six times, apologizes at least two dozen times, and tells me I'm not as mean as most staff. I wonder if mean is code for enforcing rules. Around 5 a.m., I close the notes section, titled, Overnight Shift at the DeKalb Memorial Hospital, or Beds. Her bedside bursts with unused weapons, my body notices. My unruly eyes meander the room. Defiant toddlers touching everything. Their behavior embarrasses me. Why do you keep looking over here? Involuntarily, my body begins to chatter about whatever. This American Life, number 644. Haruki Murakami's The Dancing Dwarf. Mister, are your kids this nerdy? Meanwhile, my body notes, stethoscopes, and horoscopes, latex and Xanax. It tenses at the IV stand. Stands at the walkie's crackling grin. Grins at the client's childish whims. Sings Edge of Seventeen, off-key. Mister, you're weird. But her body has visibly relaxed. A probable threat, partially relegated. I've read her serious incident report. Two headbutts, two concussions, and one badly bitten head. Four stitches in 12 minutes. She defiantly bobs a self-made glove balloon, giggles when it enters my personal space, apologizes when I keep a straight face. If she tried to swallow it, could I get it out in time? Is that even possible? She's 13 and bigger than me. Honestly, she could just sit on me if it came down to it. Is it weird if she makes me nervous? Her glasses and her hair are precisely the same shade of neon green. Imagine a masked home invader threatening your family with a six-foot portrait of Winnie the Pooh. Or maybe the monolithic, sun-soaked children's painting was admitted involuntarily as a danger to self or others. I eat the sandwich I was saving for 3 a.m. at 4 p.m. At 11 p.m., she consents to me reading some of my effing nerd crap out loud. I'm thrilled. Into a darkness invented by thirst. I trail off into a darkness invented by a pissy sleeping teenager. Keep going, she murmurs, eyes shut, as intimidating as a grapefruit. Dusk, a blade of honey between our shadows, draining. I read through an involuntary smile. At 5 a.m., my sixth cup of black hospital coffee coats my mouth like a bad paint job, sloshes into an empty stomach. My mind races slowly, stuck in first gear. I start to imagine the way we'll say goodbye. The kind of special eye contact between friends who keep forever in dry storage for that godforsaken three-hour ambulance ride to the, 
the last remaining bed in the state of Pennsylvania you're allowed to sleep in. Maybe this will never happen to you. Hers is scheduled for 10.30 a.m. Organized overnight by no-nonsense women with big hearts and brisk mannerisms. At 7 a.m., I'm relieved. I believe in you, I squeak out, but she's already faced away. I walk quickly down the hallway. I can't wait to be asleep in my bed. I remember my first experience with a clinical trauma narrative as an intern at a drug and alcohol rehab. Fluorescent light, the lifeblood of group therapy, invaded my personal space like a cavity search. Its whiteness mocks moonlight and starlight. The coffee and styrofoam cups mocks the dignity of brown liquids everywhere. A 60-year-old black man cries as he wonders aloud if his kids will ever want to see him again, or if this rehab is worth it. A 22-year-old white man with two children, 12 teeth, and permanent brain damage from speed abuse tells the group his parents gave him heroin when he was 12. When they speak, I see rabid dogs fighting under the fluorescent lights, knocking over coffee cups with their tails. My body freezes. Their trauma demands my attention, seizes it like a petulant child. Sheer terror infects my body. A slightly older man, with a chest like a barrel and shoes so clean you can't look at them, puts his hand on the speed addict's shoulder. Thank you for sharing, brother. The other humans in that group therapy session, who reach out and touch each other, who cry, share, and commune in the face of trauma, perform miracles on par with Moses. I would kill for a little humanity here at Grace. When jotting down quick notes about my kids, I had written about a 12-year-old, Daniel, raped his three-year-old sibling, good at chess. What hastily scrawled note would I have written about me at that age? Trying to become left-handed, wears big shirts, shaved head. If we let it, trauma eclipses humanity. Maybe that's why I try to find everything my kids do funny. I remember a 14-year-old boy, developmentally the age of three. The entire staff has a soft spot for him. He's in a program for sexual harassment and threatening to burn down his school. <coughs> Gobble, his favorite word, his nickname, is as darkly ambiguous as free jazz. It could mean thank you, F you, seconds please, all three. What counts as sexually maladaptive behavior? Gobble, F you, doesn't. F your mom, Gobble, might. I'll F you, yes. I'll F your mom, probably. I have your mom into outer space, Mr. Tyler. Almost too funny for SMB. When he's escalated, staff take turns, like tired villagers surrounding the store in the stone. Come on, Gobble, you're hungry, I try. F you, I'm pissed. Come on, little fish, says Miss Lynn gently, with absolute expectation. Gobble looks down, smiles shyly. Don't call me that in front of the guys, his body whisper shouts. Okay, Mama Fish, he says, and lies up. I'm still pissed. He's still smiling. You can call me Sunny Bunny, he tells me after a month, with the gravity of Abraham Lincoln promoting General Grant. Okay, Sunny Bunny. I've never taken shrooms, but I have listened to trauma narratives. I sit in a room, and to the casual observer, nothing much happens. A white tea flower unfolds in steaming water on the coffee table. Norepinephrine and adrenaline enter my bloodstream from my adrenal glands. Some psilocybin molecules cross the blood-brain barrier. Broca's area coordinates lip and tongue muscles with semantic meaning, executive function, and syntax. My right temporal parietal junction takes on the perspective of the person across from me who says, my dad used to beat me with a baseball bat, and F you. My heart beats extra blood to vital organs, preparing it to run through a burning building or something. My pupils dilate. A fan pushes air around a peaceful room. Everyday details become irrelevant. I'm not hungry. I'm not lonely. 
My FAFSA isn't due. I'm not wearing clothes. I'm not in this room. The effect of trauma has measurable physiological endpoints, but there are also other effects, harder to nail down. My own poems never used to make me cry. I used to write poems like, I need real fake red this instant, or I don't want another instant. Fight or flight or lipstick. And, hello, my name is Anger Booty. How may I love you today? Annoyed when my friends asked what they meant. Now my poems look like, He'd raise hell in hell, but it's hard for him on earth. He bangs his head against the wall, reacts to each impulse, like the audible voice of Yahweh. He's colorblind to emotion, confuses hungry for pissed, excited for homicidal, boredom for panic, abuse for love. He's 14 now, three when they found him, playing in his mother's blood. His mind hasn't left that spot. I see Marvin in heaven. He gently teases me for being homeschooled, wraps me in a bear hug, raves about last night's sunset. He's fiercely protective of his three dogs, two cats, four spiders, and two parrots. He was born in hell, but Marvin's going to effing heaven. Wow, what a powerful story that Luke has crafted here from his experiences. I really like um, that even though some of the the scenes are narratively difficult to follow, um, they, they leave out a lot of the details that you might normally expect, but it kind of kind of serves to confront you with, you know, the emotional reality kind of just puts you right in the experience and, and hits you with the uh, important things going on beneath the surface and, and not getting bogged down in the uh, the narrative details of it. Kind of liked that uh, experience. Yeah, um, I think it just shows that like Luke is a really empathetic person. And I think part of empathy is being able to see past um, stories that people are telling you and the words that they're saying um, and really being able to understand the parts of their experience that can't be spoken about. Um, And so I think this story does a really good job of um, putting the listener in the place of people who have had um, extremely traumatic and unique experiences and giving you like a little um, understanding of how they feel. Yeah, true. I think that one of the big themes of the story is struggling to communicate with a a world and to interact with a world that uh, is just very sharply different from um, your inner experience of being affected by trauma and the history that you have and um, just the difficulties uh, of that experience. I think uh, that that could be something that we pick up on with our poem. Um, What else? Yeah, I think I'd agree. Um, just trauma in general is a good theme to look for, for in a poem. And um, just this reality that most of us face where uh, things happen to us in our past that were out of our control and now they shape uh, a big part of our identity. And I mean, in this case, in this story, um, they were events that were more traumatic than, than the average person. But um yeah, I think that our um, out-of-control past um, really shapes a lot of who we are now, and that's something we're all dealing with. All right, well, uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes with that poem for your listening pleasure. Uh, in the meantime, here is a word from our sponsors. Today's episode brought to you by The Taming of the Shrew, a classic Shakespearean tale. 
This was the one where William Shakespeare wrote a play about birds and how to take care of them. It was a real sleeper hit. And by pigeons. Yes, pigeons have finally come out and said that they are not birds, they are government workers, and they are unionizing and fighting for their right to a living wage. So this, uh, this episode is brought, brought to you by pigeons. They've donated to us. I'm not sure why they're doing that if they're trying to raise their own wage, but shout out to pigeons. Upon further review, we have selected a poem that touches on the themes of loneliness and experience, despair, and the reliving of past traumas. So here is The North Wind by Anne Bronte. That wind is from the north. I know it well. No other breeze could have so wild a swell. Now deep and loud it thunders round my cell, then faintly dies and softly sighs and moans and murmurs mournfully. I know its language, thus it speaks to me. I have passed over thy own mountains, dear, thy northern mountains, and they still are free, still lonely, wild, majestic, bleak, and drear and stern and lovely as they used to be, when thou, a young enthusiast, as wild and free as they, o'er rocks and glens and snowy heights didst often love to stray. I've blown the wild, untrodden snows in whirling eddies from their brows, and I have howled in caverns wild where thou, a joyous mountain child, didst dearly love to be. The sweet world is not changed, but thou, art pining in a dungeon now, where thou must ever be. No voice but mine can reach thine ear, and heaven has kindly sent me here, to mourn and sigh with thee, and tell thee of the cherished land of thy nativity. Blow on, wild wind, thy solemn voice, however sad and drear, is nothing to the gloomy silence I have had to bear. Hot tears are streaming from my eyes, but these are better far than that dull, gnawing, tearless time, the stupor of despair. Confined and hopeless as I am, oh, speak of liberty, tell me of my mountain home, and I will welcome thee. Thanks for joining us yet again. Uh, please be sure to come back next week for the final episode of Standable Season 1.